Take your scriptures this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're picking up in verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 this morning. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the, Zan- the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, this morning we take another little portion of this historical gospel account and seek to think about it rightly, both as to its plain meaning and as to its practical application. We ask help with both, that we might indeed understand the scripture correctly, but also that we might live after the the fashion of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for each person that is here to hear. Ask your blessing upon us as we study the word together. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. How big would the Bible have to be if God were to have written down everything he did? Well, the Apostle John ended his gospel account of Jesus the Christ with these words. And there are Also, many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. There is not, nor can there be, an exhausted written record of God the Son become man. We do possess, in the New Testament, four accounts of the Lord Jesus on earth in the first century. Each possession has its own unique perspective and portrayal according to a unified purpose. 
unified in purpose, but very different is Matthew from Mark, very different is Mark from Luke, very different is Luke from John. We call Matthew, Mark, Luke the synoptic gospels because there's a greater sense of shared similarity as the content between those three gospel accounts. And yet we would have to say even of those three that while they share a tremendous unity of purpose, they do not share the same unique perspective. How many perspectives would you have to have in order to give a full orb sense of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done? Answer, there are too many. We have four, and each one is a blessed thing. And what we possess in the gospel account of Christ is sufficient in the will of God for us. But it is by no means exhaustive. And so, as we have alerted you since the beginning of our study in Matthew, Matthew in particular follows important Old Testament prophecies to be cited as a way of presenting to us Jesus, the Christ, and the other thing that's unique to Matthew is the phenomenal gaps of time than which elements of the Lord's life on earth are purposely ignored according to Matthew's gospel purpose. We spoke of the significant gap between chapters 2 and 3. Matthew's record of the Lord's birth jumps forward to the record of his baptism by ignoring years of time, at least 18 years of time, depending how you figure uh, the end of, of Matthew chapter 2, uh, but really you could say 30 years of time. And yet the record of the Lord's baptism, chapter 3, is immediately connected or connects to the battle of the Lord with the adversary at the beginning of chapter 4. No gap of time between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And now, we pick up at verse 12, after the Lord's battle victory, and Matthew's next emphasis is intriguing, to say the least. And the thing that makes Matthew's next reference so intriguing is that, ready, the first miracle of the Lord at Canaan, uh, the cleansing of the temple complex in Jerusalem, the visit from Nicodemus, in the middle of the night, the encounter with the Samaritan woman by the well all took place in the six months of time between verse 11 and verse 12. Matthew skips over six months of the Lord's life in order to stay on target for his gospel purpose. This is what I've been telling you is missed when preachers feel compelled to always harmonize all the Gospels. And it's good to do that. But when you tell all the story, you sometimes miss the point of the story that is being told. And in this particular case, Matthew takes us from the Lord's 40 days in the wilderness directly to the beginning of the great Galilean ministry in the spring of 27 A.D., all the details recorded in John chapter 1, 
2, 3, and 4 fit within the gap, Matthew 11 and 12, Matthew 4, verse 11, and Matthew 4, 12, a six-month gap in which you can insert John 1, 1 to 4. After passing through Samaria, John chapter 4, uh, the Lord spent some time in his hometown of Nazareth, which you can read of in Luke chapter 4. Matthew, of course, skips that too, choosing as driven by the Holy Spirit to focus upon the messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 and the forecast of God's light to shine in the dark place that is described as, quote, way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. That is the prophetic quote of prophetic place coming out of Isaiah chapter 9 and related to in Matthew chapter 4 at verse 15. Matthew is specifically developing the messianic credentials in connection to Jesus regarding the promised king and his kingdom. Jesus is born king of the Jews. He is the mightier one baptized with the heavenly mission to save God's people from their sins. He is battle-tested and proven ready. And now, Matthew tells us of the Lord's prophecy fulfilling ministry in the location of Galilee. There are three additional quick things that I'd like to uh, mention uh, as we uh, seek to complete our introduction of this particular next section of our study. First, Matthew tells us that Jesus initiated his prophetic fulfilling work when he heard that his forerunner, John the Baptizer, had been jailed. Uh, that is a significant moment of time, the thing that triggers the Lord's activity in public ministry as never before during his earthly life is, as verse 12 says it, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. So it is John's imprisonment that triggered the Lord's deliberate move away from Nazareth, verse 15, to take up residency in Capernaum, verse 13. Now, it should be clear to you and me that the Lord Jesus himself initiated this prophecy-fulfilling work. Matthew's going to quote Isaiah 9. He's going to say that Christ went to Galilee, and uh, he's going to say that that fulfills uh, the prophecy, the ancient prophecy concerning Messiah. And it ought to be initially clear to you and to me that the Lord himself initiated that prophecy-fulfilling work. Now, listen carefully. If sentimentalism were ruling the Lord's heart on that day, he would have considered it his duty to go and visit John. John is his forerunner. John is the man of God that preceded him. 
John is the one that looked at him one day on the, on the lift of a Jordan and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John is the one to whom Jesus came and said, John, we need to fulfill all righteousness. I know that you don't want to baptize me, but you need to baptize me because you need to do everything God has given you to do. And I need to do everything that the Father has given me to do. You need to baptize me so that we can fulfill all righteousness. That John is in prison. And I tell you that it would be the human thing to do. It would be the heartful thing to do to jump on your camel and to head to go see John. Say, oh, John, I feel so bad that you're in prison, buddy. And yet Jesus hears that John is in prison. And that's when he departs for Galilee. So I hear you're in the hospital, so I'm going out of state. I hear your relative died, so I'm leaving on a plane for Florida in the morning. I mean, let's face it, this is an unusual reaction. It's an unusual human reaction. And you and I ought to be alerted by the Spirit of God. Why is this what we're being told concerning Jesus Christ in this season of time? If sentimentalism were ruling the day, Jesus would have quickly gone to visit John. But scriptural prophecy is ruling the day. And Jesus makes his move based upon every word that had proceeded out of the mouth of God. Exactly as he told the devil. This is huge. Don't miss it. Now contemplate with me in light of that general introductory perspective. Contemplate with me the significance then of his ministry headquarters, verse 13, being Capernaum. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun. Uh, we usually say Zebulun. The more modern uh, reading of the place is Zebulun, and that's what's in my mind, in my heart, so I have to really pause at the old king's English to get out Zebulun. And then uh, Nephalem uh, is, uh, is the Jewish tribe of, uh, of, Nepha- uh, of Naphtali, as I said it for years, and and I've been instructed, better said, Natali, Natali. And so uh, you have the aspect of, of uh, these places that are referencing the Jewish tribes as they were given assignment of territory uh, in the land of Israel under the days of conquest, under the days of Joshua. Now, there is absolutely no better historical description of the location of Capernaum than that which Isaiah 9 gives to us by way of prophecy and that which Matthew 4.15 gives to us by way of fulfillment. And that location description is, quote, way of the sea in Galilee of the nations. The village of Capernaum, named for Nahum, 
had grown in the first century into a trade and transportation center. It was there that a large promenade was constructed along the freshwater lake called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, archaeologists tell us that that promenade was 2,500 feet long. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do this week and just never got around to doing it is uh, uh, to measure from where the Coast Guard station is in Grand Haven until the aspect of uh, the lighthouse out on the pier. And I, I think, in my mind at least, as I think about it, that it would be about the same distance, about a half a mile from the Coast Guard station in Grand Haven uh, to the lighthouse, uh, that it'd be about the same uh, distance of space approximately as was this ancient promenade, this deck-like thing built along the lake shore uh, in the place called Capernaum. Capernaum was the place of a thriving fishery business in the first century, and it was the go-to place uh, for catching a ferry across the lake. A major east-west trade route passed right through it, and abundant agricultural produce of the region was shipped from there throughout the entire Middle East. Historically, the area of Galilee, uh, with a range of about 60 miles, had been assigned to the Jewish tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, following the days of conquest under Joshua, as you know, the successor to Moses. But the area was adjacent to a significant Gentile population, which became domineering during the days of Isaiah the prophet. During the days of Isaiah the prophet, the Jewish people looked at that region to the north in Galilee and said, that is a dark place. That's where all them pagan Gentiles, like those people that are members at First Baptist Church of Alto, that's where all them people live. And, uh, and so uh, they, uh, they saw uh, the area as a dark place because of Gentile influence. But that element of uh, negativity towards the region, towards the area, continued on uh, right from the days of Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, all the way to and through the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And so the attitude was a dominant attitude of negativity that Galilee was indeed a dark place. Capernaum, of course, was the place where Peter and Andrew lived. It was the place where John and James lived. It was the place where Matthew, formerly known as Levi, collected taxes. It was the place where Jesus would heal the centurion's servant. Jesus would heal the nobleman's son. Jesus would heal Peter's mother-in-law and the paralytic. It was the place where Jesus would raise from the dead the daughter of Jairus. Biblical scholars recognize Capernaum as the anchor city of three city sites including Chorazin, Bethsaida, 
that are referenced as the evangelical triangle because of the Lord's ministry operations that were, carry, uh, that were carried out in that very small circle on the map. Strategically, Capernaum was a smart choice for a far-reaching ministry campaign. It was a healthy distance from the fussy religionists in Judea. But Matthew assures us that the reason that Jesus made Capernaum his ministry headquarters had first and foremost to do with his fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Now, what does that tell us about Christ? Well, it tells us that Jesus the Christ lived on earth so as to fulfill every word of God concerning him. One more time. Christ lived on earth so as to fulfill every word of God concerning him. Was it smart? to make your ministry headquarters where there was a highway that went literally around the world. Sure. Was it smart to make your ministry uh, headquarters in a place where you could catch a boat to go to the other side of the lake? Sure. Uh, was it smart uh, to make your ministry headquarters where there was a thriving fishing business and uh, some of those uh, fishermen may be uh, ripe for a job change? Sure. Uh, was it right and smart uh, for the Lord to go to Capernaum because it was a rich agricultural area and, uh, and that uh, would uh, uh, and, uh, literally be considered to be the, the breadbasket uh, of the area. Sure, uh, there's all these human reasonings as to why Capernaum might be a choice. And yet the Bible tells us that that is not the leading thought of Christ. He did not read a book. And where's the best place to establish your political campaign headquarters? He established his place of ministry as an adult exactly where the word of God said he would. And we are led by Matthew to understand, to believe, and to embrace the fact that Christ lived on earth so as to fulfill the word of God concerning him. And I would say then, to my own heart, and to yours this morning, as Christ, so Christian. What does it mean to live as a Christian? It means that you live on earth so as to fulfill Every word of God concerning you. There's nothing in the Bible that says I have to live in Elto. But if I were to obey God in every word I understand concerning me, it meant for me at a given point in time, 2011, that I would come.
Therefore, while there are many thoughts in every preacher about the fact that this would be a good time to leave, this would be a good time to leave, generally Monday, uh, this would be a good time to leave, this would be a good time to leave, uh, 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 every preacher has those thoughts. I tell you, I don't, I don't think that decision is mine. That's God's business. My job as a follower of Christ is to embrace the concept of living on earth so as to fulfill every word of God concerning me. Just like Jesus Christ lived on earth to fulfill every word of God concerning him. So I said to the Lord this week, I said, Lord, I I don't know what to do with the election. I don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to... Uh, to say uh, uh, in regards to the thing. I, I, I don't know how to characterize it oftentimes in a, in a sink kind of way. I really hate the process. I really hate the parties. I really don't like anybody. I don't like anybody. I don't like anybody. I just don't like anybody over there. And, uh, and I'm going to mark my ballot and, and the best that I know how, but I don't like anybody. I don't like anybody. Oh, Lord, I don't like anybody. Oh, Lord, what should I say to the people? What should I say? What do I do? How do I live? And that morning, I opened up my devotional material, and it was based upon 1 Peter 2.17, and it said this. Honor all. Love the brothers. Fear God. Honor the king. Those are four words from God concerning me. And so I'm to honor all, even the people that I don't like, recognizing that by creation, they are in the image of God. And because of the great love gift of Christ, under God's call for redemption. And for the sake of creation, and for the sake of redemption, you and I are under God's command to love all. Furthermore, Love the brethren, especially love the brethren. Those are those that have given their hearts and their minds to Christ, at least by means of profession. And they ought to especially be a part of the prayers of the family and the attention of God's servant in a place. Honor all. Love the brethren. Fear God. Above all, fear God. Recognize that God is God and there is none else. And then, honor the king. Honor the government. Do your duty. Vote with a sense of honor. Do your best. And trust God for the outcome. And realize that the zeitgeist of America is going in the opposite direction from the word of God and the testimony of Christ. And it is not likely that things will go our way. But that's okay, because the Bible said that they would not go our way before our Lord doth return. I'm just trying to make application out loud for you this morning, because sometimes I think we hear a sermon and we just don't know exactly what to do with it. But I can't tell you how greatly my gizzard has been blessed. I know I don't have one. But nonetheless, I can't tell you how greatly my gizzard has been blessed 
uh, to think about the fact that living Christ is a very simple thing, and that is just to live on earth so as to fulfill every word of God concerning me. Every word of God concerning you. Number two, the forecast of the Messiah's majesty is indicated in verses 14 to 16 in the terms of light. I already told you that the area long had reputation among the Jews as a dark place because of the ungodly influences of the pagan Gentiles. Old Testament Isaiah lamented the conditions of the area in the terms of spiritual darkness and death. Again, 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. To them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light. And if I were writing the TWT translation of the New Testament, I would argue for a capital L. Light is sprung up. Old Testament Isaiah had a revelatory vision of God's great light shining upon the region, specifically named as by the way of the sea in Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations. The word way, as quoted in verse 15, means highway or trade route. The region Galilee is quoted and lamented as being dominated by Gentiles. Yet, to that unlikely place, God's first light did shine concerning the Jewish king, who would indeed be identified as the light of the world. Matthew, then, is the first New Testament writer to give us the truth that the light of the world is Jesus. If somebody would have come to me and say, Pastor, where in the Bible do you find that concept uh, that uh, the light of the world is Jesus? I'd say, oh, that's in John chapter 8. But actually, it's first in Matthew chapter 4. While it's not stated in those kind of succinct terms that of which we are familiar and of which we sometimes sing, nonetheless, the whole point of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, the whole point of Matthew's Declaration of Fulfillment, Matthew chapter 4, 15, 16, is that light has come, and it is the light of God, and it is the light of Messiah, who is indeed the light of the world. And so we sing that now. The light of the world is Jesus, and we engaged in that refrain by saying to other people, come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly, that light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see the light of the world. 
is Jesus. But Matthew, having noted the fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy, uh, uh, uniquely points us to the uniqueness of Jesus as God the light. And again, just take a deep breath with me and say, okay, so what do you do with the truth that, that, uh, that Christ is the light of the world? Well, let's do with that truth what Jesus did with it. Jesus knows that he's the light of the world and there is no light like his light. Amen? And yet Jesus said to his followers, ye are the light of the world. Meaning the fact that the disciples of Christ, the followers of Christ, followers like you and I, I describe ourselves to be in this generation, are here for the purpose of light. The light of Christ in regards to others. Christ is the light of the world. Christians are his light still manifest in this world through their own flesh. I just tell you that the application elements of this thing are huge as you think upon them and allow the Spirit of God to apply them to your heart. Now, Christ as God's light, which is the forecast of the Lord's majesty in that moment of time, first advent, then immediately is connected to what the Lord then, then, first time then, began to do. From that time, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to what? It's in the text. To what? From that time Jesus began to what? Preach. That's a phenomenal concept to think about. Because that word preach has the me has the idea of, uh, of of what I'm doing up here behind this pulpit. It has to do with a public declaration of the word of God. There's no doubt that the Lord Jesus before this was engaged in the aspect of interactions with people like Peter, James, and John, and uh, and uh, and others. There's no doubt about the fact that he was engaged at that wedding feast and turned water to wine. There's no doubt about the fact that, that he was engaged in, in a number of things uh, in the early days, in that first year of obscurity, as it's called by Bible scholars, because there's for, so little written about it except for John 1, 2, 3, and 4. And, and uh, so you have a, a lot of things that, that happen. But one thing that Jesus didn't do, and he didn't do it for a whole year, after baptized of John, or at least six months plus after he had been baptized of John, and that is preach. Call a crowd together and preach as did John preach. It's as if Jesus said, John's carrying the ball of public declaration until he's not, and then I'll do it. John preached. And just look at what Jesus preached. Very interesting. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Really? Really? Yeah. Go back to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did John preach? Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus preach? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The preaching ministry of Jesus began with a message to the Jewish nation, a public message to the Jewish nation to repent. Repentance was called for on the basis that the kingdom of heaven promised out of heaven to the Jewish nation was in that moment at hand. The divinely appointed time or age of righteousness and return of Davidic rule over a regathered Israel had come by way of opportunity. The opportunity of God was for righteousness. The opportunity of God was for the return of Davidic rule. The opportunity of God in that moment was a regathered Israel enjoying the blessings of God's promise. But the need of the hour then, as stated, for the Jewish nation was to repent. I love the commentary summary of a dear brother who wrote, Jesus preached repentance to the Jewish people, in essence saying, this great darkness has been upon you because of the great darkness that is within you. Repent. The needful thing in the moment of time for the Jewish nation to receive the kingdom of God as promised was that they would repent. Jesus did not steal John's message. Jesus simply preached the message out of heaven as John first had. The gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel we preach based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom is that unique good news to the Jewish nation of their opportunity relative to the promised kingdom of God. And remember, Matthew is writing not only so as to convince us as to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, but also to explain to us why the Jewish kingdom has been delayed. And the simple reality is it's been delayed because the Jewish nation, when called upon, an opportunity given them by God through John and then Jesus to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, did not. Or as the scripture says it, he came unto his own and his own received him not. The emphasis upon repentance like John underscores the human side of necessity in response to the promises of God. The Bible word repentance is a compound word uh, made up of the Greek prefix meta, which means to move or to change, and the word for mind, noeo, meo, noeo. I was fascinated when billionaire Mark Zuckerberg renamed his social media platform, known formerly as Facebook, now named Meta. 
Meta means move or change. We could say that Mark Zuckerberg repented of the name Facebook and named the thing change or meta. Biblical repentance refers to a change of disposition towards sin and a change of disposition towards God. Repentance of actual sins and self-serving in the light of God's kingdom opportunity, Matthew chapter 4, rightly characterizes what did happen. And thereby you and I are able to grab that and make applications to ourselves. Repentance of actual sin and self-serving are required of us and acquire and required of Americans if we are to receive from God the heavenly opportunities designed for us. You vote on Tuesday. The kingdom opportunity was great. The response in repentance was zippity-doo-dah. Oh, I know there were some. And as many as received him, as welcomed him, as believed on him, to them he gave authority, to them he gave power uh, to believe on his name uh, and, to, and to make them, as it were, the sons of God. John 1.12. You and I are indeed living in a day where there is, without doubt, some heavenly opportunities we as a congregation, have yet to enjoy. And if we would enjoy them, then we must repent of our sins and repent of our self-serving and lay hold of the things, all the things, that God has intended for us. How much of what God has designed for you, are you enjoying? I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. And I say of myself, not enough. Not enough. There are such glorious things in the blessed designed will of God for me and for you, yet to be enjoyed, if our hearts are right, our prayers are pure, and our walk is consistent with God. Don't you dare think you got it all. In Christ, you got him all, but you have not lived the life of God's design perfectly, nor have I. And the way to live the life of God's design is a way of repentance and turning towards God for help. Every time in all generations, 
May the people of God hear that. Thus Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Father, this morning you have answered our prayer for a greater measure of application as we worked our way through some of the most astounding details, fascinating prophetic details concerning Christ to be read in all the scripture. Help us then to be a responsive people, exactly as you have prescribed, and to enjoy more of those heavenly divine opportunities that indeed are before us, individually, individually, 